Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Easter is a 50-day season. Um, Anglicans, you know, we do Lent for 40 days, and we're not about to not party for a little bit longer than that. So Easter is 50 days. The, the Lord walked the earth for 50, 40 days and then 10 days until Pentecost. And so that's why we celebrate Easter as a season. And during this season, we're looking at Tim Keller's Hope in Times of Fear. This is the fourth sermon, looking especially at chapter 6, if you're reading along. A little bit of a of review. I began the series by saying that the world is facing a crisis of hope but that the reality of the resurrection means the reality of hope. We're not just doing a religious plaything here. We actually believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And this anchors our hope in this world. Then we looked at the nature of that hope. The kingdom of God was launched in the resurrection, which brings us a future hope and a glorious hope. And then last week, we looked at the great reversal. And I kind of challenged you. Some of you are at the women's retreat. Maybe you heard the podcast. We have a podcast, so maybe you caught that. Thank you, Jeff Wright and Matt, for that. Um, But I said, how low can you go? I challenged you to a game of spiritual limbo. What if the humility of Christ is the hope of the world? Well, this week, we're going to get personal. We're going to make things a little personal. Because the resurrection of Jesus actually did happen, but it only becomes meaningful to us and an actual resource within us if we genuinely, by faith, are filled with the hope of Christ and changed from within through personal encounter with the risen Lord. So we're going to get personal this morning. Um, The summer before our family moved here in um, October 2019, the summer before that, I had the somewhat harrowing experience of being the speaker at a five-day youth summer camp um, called Camp Booyah. That was not my decision, but that was the name of the camp. (laughs) Um, One of the students there from my youth group was the oldest daughter of a pastor. And when she was asked to share with our church about her experience at Camp Booyah, She said this, right in front of her father, the pastor, and his entire church. She said, I feel like, and I quote, at Camp Booyah this summer, I really heard the gospel for the first time. (laughs) I look over, and he's just, her father's just like, you know. Um, Over 15 years of ministry, I've heard this story hundreds of times. Some of you have probably told this story. You know, when I was young, my parents made me go to church three times a week, but it wasn't until so-and-so or such-and-such, that I actually heard the gospel for the first time. And I heard this story so much that I began to doubt it a little bit. In fact, I knew for a fact that this student had heard the gospel because she'd heard it from me in youth group years after year after year. But it wasn't until Cambuya that she heard the gospel. Um, You know, I think in many of these cases, and she'd heard it from her father and and her home, of course. I think in many of these cases, we might say, uh, people, you know, I heard the gospel. I never heard the gospel. We really mean they'd never just like Maybe they'd heard it as background noise. You know, it it had been there like a barking dog or like like passing traffic, but they had never really tuned in. If the gospel is really going to bring you hope in times of fear, it requires not just hearing, but it requires an intimate listening. Kind of like the kind of listening where you might put your AirPods in and you turn the volume way up and you begin humming the lyrics to your favorite song and you get lost for five minutes in the deep beauty of this song. That's the kind of hearing the gospel requires if it's actually going to fill you with hope. 
Because it's quite possible that what I've said so far in this series has been kind of like background noise for some of you. You know, interesting, intellectually stimulating, perhaps, I hope. But the invitation now is to put the AirPods in and to give it a real intimate listening. Like the resurrection of Jesus is real and it addresses you personally. The risen Jesus wants to commune with you personally. And that's how hope is going to come into your heart. So let's look at three case studies. We're going to look at three case studies in the New Testament of how people encountered the risen Jesus and how it became personal for them. We're going to start with Mary and her encounter with the risen Jesus in John 20. We read this. Mary stood outside the womb, the tomb, and she was crying. The tomb, and she was crying. And she went and she bent over and she looked into the tomb. And at this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? This is a question we'll return to. Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, Mary said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead and tell my brothers, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I want to notice first three things about this encounter before we move to the next encounter. Notice the expectations of Mary, and then notice the initiative of Jesus, and then notice the intimacy of their friendship. So first, notice Mary does not immediately recognize the risen Jesus. Why? Well, perhaps in part because his body is now glorified, it's now perfected, it's now the first fruit of new creation, which we all anticipate our bodies being made new. So there's There's something a little intriguing about his body. It's the same but different, okay? But another reason may be that Mary is living within a particular story. She's crying, and she asks, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. So her story is that Jesus is still dead, and someone's taken his body away. And that is informing her perspective. Keller says here that Mary represents the entire human race. How so? Because sometimes it's, it's our, the stories that we're living in, it's our expectations that cloud our ability to see clearly. So, for example, my spiritual director a couple day, days ago said this to me. We were talking about conflict in marriage. I don't know if any of you married people know anything about that. Um, but let's say you're just talking past each other. And he said, sometimes when my wife and I are talking past each other, we, we pause and we say, the story I'm hearing, the story I'm living in right now is... Meaning, like, this is the narrative that's in my head. This is how I'm hearing you. And then one of them can say, oh, no, 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 that's not right. That's not the right story. Because the stories we live in powerfully inform our expectations, our ability to see reality. And so Mary's living in the story. He's dead. They've taken his body. Right? Well, this is the story of the human race. Why? Romans 3.10, no one seeks for God. Each of our hearts is selfish. It's clouded with selfish motives and expectations. Sure, we may see spirituality. You know, we may seek some kind of spirituality or some sort of transcendence. But at the end of the day, there is a selfishness in our hearts that inclines us to construct God out of our own expectations, out of our own desires. He, we, we, sort of like a marionette. We build him. We build a God who doesn't challenge our assumptions, who doesn't challenge our expectations or our desires. Each of us is tempted to do that, at least. 
If we're to authentically encounter the risen Jesus and be filled with hope, we need to, be let, we need to let God be God. We need to let him defy our expectations. And it's not easy because if I'm honest, maybe you can relate, I've got a set of expectations that I would like God to meet. You know, I'd like him to be supportive, but not too preachy maybe, you know, not too judgy. Um, I'd like his endorsement, sure, I'd, maybe his occasional feedback, yes, but I'd, preser- I'd like to preserve the right to veto him. I mean, would each of you not prefer that he endorses your precise way of seeing the world? Would each of you not prefer in your heart that he instinctively endorses the way you just innately respond to things like the Roe v. Wade conversation or or immigration or sexuality or education or global warming? It's like, yeah, my thoughts are right, and God's here to sort of pat me on the back. Many of us approach things that way, right? Are we willing to be corrected by God? Are we willing to let him shatter our expectations, to let God be God? Second, This encounter means that grace must come to us because of what I've just said, right? None of us seeks God. For we simply don't see what we don't see. Our vision is clouded. And so notice how Jesus comes to Mary so gently, not as a commander, but as a counselor. He begins probing her heart with these gentle questions. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Are you willing to let Jesus address you with this question? Really, get honest with him. Cindy, who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? A dead teacher? Are you looking for a marionette tied together by your own perspective and expectations and preferences? Or are you looking for and willing to encounter the risen God, the risen Christ? Notice the intimacy, finally, of the friendship. Mary's narrative is at last exploded, not by like Jesus correcting her or critiquing her, but by her name. Look at this. She's in her, she's in her narrative. He's dead. The body's taken. This is the gardener. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary. And then Mary recognizes him. She probably thought, only Jesus says my name that way. Mary realizes this is not the gardener who has freed her. This is not the gardener. This is the Messiah who we know from her stories freed her from seven demons, restored her to her sanity, her very self. And then Jesus says this funny thing. Don't cling to me. Don't hold to me. Why does he say this? The term translated hold on to me here means to cling very tightly. In other words, Mary was hugging him in a full-on embrace, a bear hug. She was hugging Jesus, her friend, in a loving embrace. And Jesus' response is not like, don't touch me, I'm too holy, and you're not, get away from me. Because, we know that, because Jesus goes on to say why Mary should let him go. He says, I must ascend to my Father and to your Father. We know elsewhere that Jesus teaches his ascension is the prerequisite for what? His sending of the Spirit. So Jesus is saying, let go so that I can return to embrace you in a deeper way through the Spirit. And not just you, Mary, for a moment, but all of my children for eternity through the Spirit's embrace. But we still see in Mary's kind of, just picture it in your mind, Mary just like, she's crying and suddenly she hears her name, Mary, and she just throws herself upon Jesus. And that is a signpost pointing to the embrace that is on offer for you and I. If we're going to be filled with hope, We must personally come to know Jesus as our intimate friend through the Spirit. And some of you relate to that. 
and you're saying, yes, I've heard Jesus speak my name. I sense this intimacy with him, and I feel like I'm embracing him, or at least I have in different seasons of life. That's great. For others of you, this is a little bit of a stretch. Maybe you relate a little bit more to John and his encounter and to Peter and his encounter with the risen Jesus. Look at this in in John 20, verse 3. Both Peter and John were running, and they get to the tomb, and they bend over, and they look in at the strips of linen lying there, but they don't go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind John, and he went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. A lot of interesting details about the linens here. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, and man, John is really insistent that we recognize he is much faster than Peter, (laughs) also went inside, and then he saw and believed. And this is really an olive branch to the many of us in the post-Enlightenment West who have been shaped to think primarily where the powers of reason might be more accessible to us than the language of the heart. So when Mary first sees that the stone is rolled away, the word there is blepo. It's just the basic Greek verb for seeing, like I, I see something. But when Peter first arrives at the empty tomb, the verb uses theoreo, from which we get the word theorize. Not just seeing, but observing and considering and calculating and turning over the, lin- the, the linens in his mind, what is the, like, like a scientist might. Begins putting together a hypothesis based on the clues. Now, they were especially curious about the linen, wrap, the, the linen wrapped around Jesus' body and then the facial cloth wrapped around his head. Why? Well, first, because the very existence of these cloths meant that robbers had not broken in and stolen the body, nor Jesus' friends. Because if it was his friends doing it, would his friends um, disrespected the body by unwrapping it, which would have taken time had they even gotten past the Roman guard? Surely not. They would have just carried him off, right? Or the robbers. Would the robbers have gone in and taken the time to take all the linens off and then fold them up neatly and nicely? It makes no sense. Second, not only the cloths there, they're orderly, like I just said. There's the linen cloth folded here and the head cloth rolled over here. You know, if Jesus maybe had actually just been sick, like near death, and he just needed a good long nap. And so after two days of resting, he recovered. He had been near death. He would not, I mean, the way he was wrapped, the way that the bodies in this day were wrapped with spices and linens like a mummy, he would not have been able to break out, first of all. And if he had, they'd, been, they'd have been shredded and torn. They wouldn't have been neatly, you know, folded like laundry. So as they turned over these facts, what they encountered in their minds, it led them to this conclusion in verse 8, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. So listen, Christian faith is not less than intellectual assent. Okay, but it is more than that. Faith does include the mind. It is not unreasonable. Peter and John were simply applying the method of Sherlock Holmes before his time. Sherlock Holmes says, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So intellectual assent alone is saying something like this. Um, imagine there's a tightrope walker here in the church. And you look at him and you think, wow, he is good or, or she's really good. I bet she could walk all the way across that tightrope with me on her back. Okay, that's intellectual assent. You think something is true, right? But what is faith? What is the belief that John does here? It's saying, wow, I think that tightrope walker is amazing. I bet they could carry me across that with me on their back. And now I'm going to hop on and I do it. It's kind of putting your money where your mouth is. That's the kind of belief. John placed his whole life 
Peter and John now give their whole life to this belief that Jesus is risen. And note, before they saw the risen Jesus, just based on the evidence, is that not a great model for us who have not seen the risen Jesus with our eyes? So some of you might relate to Mary. Some of you might relate more to the rational process of Peter and John. And lastly, consider Thomas. Ah, Thomas. We heard it read this morning. Thomas, one of the twelve called, called the twin, was not with Jesus when Jesus had first come to them. So the other disciples had told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said, unless I touch his hands and his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. And although the doors were locked, Jesus comes and stands among them and says, peace be with you. And then he goes right to Thomas. And he says, Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Put your hand here and place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Well, did Thomas not also reason his way to belief? Well, kind of. If Thomas took the Myers-Briggs, no doubt he would have been a strong S, a strong sensing type. Any S's in the room, aside from Matt? Matt, nice and high for us. Come on, don't be ashamed. (laughs) Another S? Yeah, so sensing temperaments require physical data to make decisions. Sensory experience, whereas the N, the intuitive type, tends to just go with the gut, right? Thomas was an S. His cynicism makes him a perfect stand-in for today's skeptics. So maybe you have a worldview that says resurrection can't happen, right? Or you have a cynical temperament like Thomas. Or you're just fearful about believing something that ultimately disappoints you. You come to, you, you put your belief in this thing and it's not true. Thomas is your man. Sure, you say, but, but Thomas got special treatment, right? I mean, he, he touched Jesus and the wounds in his hands. If I could do that, then I would believe, right? Sure. Jesus acknowledges the distance between Thomas and us, right? Between Thomas and 2022 America. And he names it, blessed are you who have not seen yet believed. So he knows there's a difference. So in one sense, that's true. But why? Thomas was an apostle. And there are two prerequisites for being an apostle. One, you had to have seen with your own eyes the risen Lord. And two, you had to have been personally instructed by Jesus while he was alive. So yeah, Thomas was an apostle. He, you know, he sees the risen Jesus and touches him as a way of ensuring his qualifications as an apostle of the church. You and I, we're not apostles. But on a closer reading of Thomas's story, I think we see something in a way that you and I are actually just like Thomas. Consider that Thomas first receives the testimony about Jesus being risen from the other apostles, just like we do, right? We receive the testimony, the apostolic testimony, through the scriptures, Cynics and skeptics and Myers-Briggs sensing types have all kinds of resources if they want to actually engage this question. Uh, N.T. writes, The Resurrection of the Son of God is a 900-page tome that just powerfully argues for the reality of the resurrection. Richard Bauckham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses basically proves, and most people who give it a fair hearing um, conclude, basically proves that the Gospels are eyewitness testimonies, not forgeries. So if there is a willingness, then go to these places. And you receive the same testimony that Thomas received from the apostles through the scriptures. The second, in response to the apostolic testimony, Thomas lays out his conditions for belief. And maybe you have some conditions for belief you'd like to lay out. Thomas's is, I must touch his wounds. All right, well, that one's off the table for you. But when the risen Jesus does come to the disciples, what happens? 
He goes immediately to Thomas and he says, put your finger here and see my side. Place, it, place your hands here. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And then Thomas, we read, immediately responds, my Lord and my God. Notice Thomas immediately moves from the deepest doubt articulated in the gospel to the highest profession of faith articulated in the gospel. Why? Keller presses the point. He says, what brought Thomas so decisively to faith? Despite the offer from Jesus, there is no indication that Thomas actually did what he had asked to do, namely, put his hands into Jesus' wounds. The scriptures actually never tell us whether or not that happened, almost like it's not important. So then, what overcame Thomas's doubts? Leon Morris writes this, it is possible that it's the words of Jesus, not the wounds, that brought belief for Thomas. For his words immediately show that Jesus had been perfectly aware of what Thomas had laid down in his demands. How did Jesus arrive at his knowledge unless he had been with Thomas unseen? Do you, do you see the point? The point is this. How did, Thomas know, how did Jesus know Thomas's heart? Thomas had only spoken his heart, his demands to, his, to, to the other disciples. Hey, unless I touch Jesus, I'm not going to... Did the other disciples then go and find Jesus somewhere and be like, Jesus, here's what Thomas said? No. The point is this, that Jesus had been walking beside Thomas, knowing his heart, unseen, all along. And it was this supernatural knowledge of what was in his heart. It was this supernatural knowledge of his cynicism and of his fear that he had read Thomas like an open book. And so when Jesus comes and he immediately names it and says, Thomas, I've seen your heart, that Thomas is laid bare and immediately goes to belief. And this, this is a pattern. Lisa Elmers and I were talking over coffee. This is a pattern over and over and over again in the scriptures where Jesus sees a heart and a person is laid bare and immediately comes to belief. So the wounds of Jesus then become not necessary requirements for belief, Jesus' words had done that, right? They became further evidence of his sacrificial love and his victory of sin over sin and death. All right, so some of you relate to Mary. Some of you relate maybe to Peter and John. Others of you to Thomas. But I want all of us to see this. While Jesus says we need not have the same eyewitness experience as Thomas in order to believe and then be filled with hope in times of fear, we do still need to make the same discovery that Thomas made which is what? In Tim Keller's words, we need to see Jesus patiently at work in our lives to bring us to himself. And then he uses this beautiful illustration from The Horse and His Boy, my second favorite Narnia book, and shout out to The Wright's Dog. This will make sense in a second. So it's from The Horse and His Boy, and the main character there is Shasta. Shasta or Shasta? Shasta, yeah. The name of their dog. Um, Shasta is the main character in the story, and he is trying to escape from a foreign land, and he's trying to get home. And on his way, everything seems to go wrong. And he keeps running into wild lions that threaten him and, and scare him. And a voice begins a conversation with Shasta, and it asks him, sorry, Shasta asks the voice, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions along the way? And the voice responds, there was only one lion. What on earth do you mean? asks Shasta. And the voice says, I was the lion. It says, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so you could reach King Loon in time. 
And I was a lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay a child near death so that it came to the shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. And in this story, Lewis is writing his own story. This lion that worked in the shadows unseen to guide Shasta home is C.S. Lewis's own story. This brilliant atheist, this brilliant atheist academic who came to find his home in the risen Christ and came to see that the risen Christ like a lion had been working in his life unseen in mysterious ways to bring him to himself. And the invitation is to see that. To see that Jesus is risen, he is alive, that he is seeking you and working unseen in the background. And there's no one right way to encounter him. You must encounter him personally. But be prepared to let him shatter your expectations. Be prepared to encounter him as he just speaks your name sweetly and softly. Be prepared for him to embrace you with his spirit and to sense a, a deep embrace in your soul to feel like I'm home. That was my experience. It's not everyone's, but in seventh grade, I was lonely and needed a friend, and there I was at Camp Kanakuk, praying off by myself under the night stars, and I, for the hundredth time, probably said, Jesus, if you're real, I need a friend, and the Spirit just embraced me, and I felt like warm honey from head to toe, and I began shaking, and to this day, I have not had an experience like that since. I long for it, right? As, oh, if I could just go back there. But sometimes I have to go back there and remember that feeling of deep peace and deep hope that filled me up, and I was never the same. A lot of ups and downs, but never the same. So maybe that's your experience, or maybe you've just thought about it a lot. You've turned it over in your mind and considered the facts, and you've decided, you know what? I read N.T. Wright's Resurrection, the Son of God, and Jesus is alive. It's true. Maybe you just need to look back on your life and need to recognize the way that Jesus unseen has been walking beside you in mystery and in grace. Father, we pray that um, each of us would be awakened to a sense of encountering you. If it's already happened, deepen it. If it's not yet happened, I pray that anyone hearing this would open their hearts and their mind to hear you speak their name, to consider the truths of these claims that you're alive and risen. I pray that you would fill us with your hope. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.